So I'm recording this on a Sunday, and earlier this afternoon, my son Emmett and I drove an hour north to watch the Dodgers host the Cubs at Dodger Stadium. And it was awesome. Our seats were nosebleeds, and we didn't care. There were peanuts and Dippin' Dots to eat. There was soda and lemonade to drink. Clayton Kershaw was on the mound. Mookie Betts was at the plate. The sun was shining. The temperature was just right. It was, again, awesome. But it was also in this hazy, heading into post-COVID world we find ourselves in, a reminder to an old sports writer how absolutely beautiful of an experience a simple baseball game can be. I didn't have a notepad in my hand, but I had my son by my side. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is James Wagner, the excellent New York Times baseball writer whose unique multicultural background makes him, in many ways, an ideal 2021 sports journalist. This is episode number 214. Let's sling some yang. Yeah, all right. Wow, James. What I love about your writing and your reporting is you come from a really diverse place. Your dad's from Ohio. Your mom's from Nicaragua. You are fluent in Spanish. You were brought up speaking Spanish. Your mom would only speak to you in Spanish. And my thing when I was covering baseball, I always thought Spanish speaking players were stigmatized repeatedly. He doesn't work hard. He's lazy. He's kind of an asshole. And I feel like you and others fill a really important void. What does your career look like if you're just James Wagner from Andover and you don't speak Spanish and you're just an aspiring sports writer? Are you writing the things you're writing? Are you even coming close to writing the things you're writing? No, I'm not. Uh, I guess I'll backtrack just to explain. Yeah, like you said, my mom's from Nicaragua. My dad's from Ohio. Also, you know, this is another point of contention I'll get into later, whether I should say Nicaragua or I should say Nicaragua. Like, which one should I really say when I'm speaking to an English speaking audience? But you know, backtrack. Yes. I mean, my, you know, my dad being from Ohio, you know, they, they named me, uh, James Wagner. Uh, my mom's last name is Via Vicencio. Uh, and I joke with her sometimes like, you know, why didn't they give me a name that worked in both languages? Because, you know, my sister and brother both have names that could be pronounced in Spanish and in English and they sound unique. James is like James, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's James in Spanish. Technically my name in Spanish, where James comes from is St. James Santiago. So Santiago is like my name in Spanish, technically. It's not Jaime. So if really, if I wanted to like mess with people or just have fun, I would change my byline to Santiago Wagner Via Vicencio. But that would be like too much. Uh, I think that's too long. It doesn't fit. But, you know, I think a name isn't everything, especially in 2021. I mean, cultures and countries, nationalities, ethnicities, you know, people are a mix of everything. And I am myself like that. And a name isn't everything. So I guess I've been on job interviews where I've been asked to speak Spanish because my resume says I'm a native Spanish speaker. I used to prove to people that I do speak Spanish. Uh, and I, you know, I've had friends that have that quote unquote name uh, who have not had to prove that they speak Spanish. And I know some people embellish their language skills, but you know, if I had the name, would I not be asked to do that? Probably not. I wouldn't be asked to prove that I speak Spanish, but I guess it's not just the language I would say to get on my soapbox for a second, but it's not just the language, just understanding the culture. A player from you know Nicaragua was not the same as a player from Cuba. They grew up differently or the Dominican Republic, the Puerto Rico. You know, Latin America is a very diverse place, very different political, cultural, everything experiences. So it's, as I used to tell people, it's not just understanding the language and making the player feel comfortable, but understanding their sensibilities, you know, where where they grew up, how they grew up, like what a, what a Venezuelan player eats that a Puerto Rican player doesn't eat, things like that, uh, just to connect with them. But a language goes a long way. And I don't think that I would have been able to, I wouldn't be here without my mom. You know, my mom was uh, my Spanish teacher growing up. Nicaragua is a sport, is a small country. I just said Nicaragua said Nicaragua. So it's a small country, 7 million people, very proud country, even though we grew up all over the world and we, I didn't live in Nicaragua. I went there every summer. She taught us to be Nicaraguan. We read Nicaraguan poetry. She corrected my Spanish. Even now, if I have a typo in Spanish to her in text, she will correct it. She has been on my behind to speak Spanish well. She always told me as a little kid that it would serve me well in my life. It, it would make my career and I wouldn't be here without her. So props to mom if she, if she ever listens to this. We can get into like specific stories and, and I think the depth and breadth, like you said, of players and the way they're viewed given the, the language barrier. Uh, but there are certain issues I think related to that that both frustrate me and I think as a 
journalism overall, you know, we can do better. All right. So I remember when I was covering baseball and this is going back two decades, there was a writer. I don't know if you know him, Jesus Ortiz, who um, yeah, I know as well. was, at the time Jesus was covering the Mets. And I actually remember, and I'm being sincere about this. We would approach a player's locker, a bunch of guys after a game, and there'd be a, a Spanish speaking player and Jesus would speak to him in Spanish. And I always thought, man, wait, a, that's it. That's it. Like exactly what you should be doing. And there were writers who would get pissed off about it. There were writers who would be annoyed by it. Like, why, why the fuck is he doing this? And blah, blah, blah. We can't. Do you feel that at all? Is that still a thing that you sense every now and then? Or have we maybe moved past that a little bit? Personally, I have felt it less. I remember early in my career, felt it more where people would like joke around with you or make, you know, tease you or, you know, there's always some truth to every joke where there's, you know, that, you know, they are joking, but deep down inside, you know, it's kind of like a jab sometimes, but um, the way I see it is, you know, these other reporters can learn Spanish if they want to think, you know, in, in my case, you know, I, I grew up with it. So I'm like grateful that was just something I was born with. And, you know, you know, I'm born with, sorry, but learned it through my mom's born with this family. Um, but, you know, they have the ability to learn Spanish if they want to the same way. I cannot speak to a Japanese player, a South Korean player, for example, uh, the same way as another Japanese reporter. So I have a disadvantage when it comes to covering those guys, but I mean, in life, it's, you know, it sounds weird to say it this way, but, you know, it's all about playing the angles. Let's say you have a, there's, you're covering a player that's from the same hometown as you. You guys can connect over that. And maybe you guys have a better relationship as reporter covering that player because you guys are from the same area. You like the same music. And language could be the same way. Like, you know, I, I most of my job is in English. I obviously interview players in Spanish, but I'm writing for an English language newspaper. Uh, my job is in English. I cover a lot of English speaking players. I get along and have relationships with English speaking sources too. And, and I have, and I have a relationship with them because maybe we're from the same hometown. We connect, we, we like the same music, whatever it might be. And so language is the same way. Like if they can't play that angle, I guess with someone, I guess learn Spanish the same way. I can't play the same angle with them if they're from the same town, Indiana, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I felt it less recently. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does help me information I get. And like, you know, I try not to be, upfront about it. You know, if there's a scrum after a game or before a game, it's in English, obviously. And if I want to ask a player a question, a more sensitive one, or get maybe more detail out of him, I will linger afterwards and ask him in Spanish off to the side. I'm not trying to, you know, get in everyone's way or take everyone's time up by doing that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if they, if they want to learn that same information or get the same insight, then I guess learn Spanish. And I think as a society, I mean, I, I want to learn Japanese. And I want to learn South, you know, sorry, Korean and, and uh, be able to speak to those players the same way. So that's on me for not being able to communicate with them, too. Wait, so if you're in a scrum after a game and it's a Spanish speaking player and he's speaking in English to the other reporters, but it's kind of choppy English is not great, but it's OK. You will not ask a question in Spanish in that situation. I will linger afterwards and ask my question in Spanish. I'm not going to do it right then and there in front of everyone in English. And, you know, if I feel like I can get a better answer in Spanish afterwards, I will do that and. Uh, sometimes even like, let's say it's a press conference setting and, you know, say, you know, especially now via zoom or a guy comes off the injured list and that's his first availability. And, you know, he gives a good answer right then and there. And the interpreter is interpreting it. Um, I'll just take the answer in Spanish. I won't use what the interpreter said. You know, obviously he said it in Spanish in front of everyone. I'll just take that answer instead rather than the interpreter. My first cover story at SI was Ichiro and I went to Seattle and I spent time with Ichiro and I would ask him a question and he would give this long answer in Japanese. And the translator would say to me, he's very happy. And I would ask the next question and give him like, how, um, how precise? Cause now, all right. So you, you, you obviously are fluent. So you understand the full transit, blah, blah, blah. How precise are the translations that the translators <laughs> are giving the writers? Some, I think do a very good job. Some do a passable job. Some do a worse job than others. It's such a diplomatic thing for me to say, but it's true. Um, sometimes, I mean, I, it is a difficult job to do. I mean, obviously these are, these people have been doing it for some time. So, you know, you know, it's a skill, but it is hard to, let's say someone does give a long winded answer, very detailed answer. And you're doing this off the top of your head. You don't, you don't have notes with you in the clubhouse. You're not jotting down what the player said in Spanish and then interpreting it in English right then and there. You're doing this from memory sometimes. So you, it's, I can imagine how hard it would be on the spot to do everything exactly exactly the way it was said but also interpretation is a matter of it's like a it's subject to interpretation it's like no pun intended because 
I can't literally translate something from Spanish to English. It would not make sense. Like, you know, adjectives comes after adjectives come after the noun in Spanish, the other way in English, you know, things like that. You can't literally. So you, there's a certain amount of interpretation. So like, yeah, maybe some people just, you know, because of nervousness on the spot, maybe lack of language skills. I don't know what it might be. I, I just, some are better than others. So I just, I listen to both and I just take the, you know, take the one in Spanish and it's not my place to be telling the other reporters who don't speak Spanish. Hey, there's more missing to that answer or there was, you know, he didn't really say it that way or that was cleaned up a little too nicely. It's not my job to be telling the other reporters that. My favorite thing really is though, like, so you sure what are, what's the key to, uh, where'd you learn to first hit? He says he likes hitting the baseball. Okay. I guess we're done here. Thank you. They hope you led the story with that. Yeah. Yeah. I did not actually. I screwed up. Um, actually, I remember I led it with um, all his teammates. He was a rookie and they called him Ichi Balls. That was a nickname for him instead of Ichiro, Ichi Balls. So anyway, you wrote a great story. I'm dating you a couple of years. I'm throwing you back a few years now, but 2018, it speaks to everything I love about sports writing, it speaks to everything I enjoy about your writing. The supermarket cafeteria that Major League Baseball. Oh, man. Such a good story. This is for the New York Times. I get, I get teased so much about this story. Wait. And other ones too. But All right. Well, let me read the lead and then I'm interested. The lead was um, is Port St. Lucie Dateline. Cooks scurried in and out of the kitchen carrying containers of pork ribs, stewed beef, beef and rice and beans. Behind a display case of Latin American pastries, a worker hurried through coffee orders. The rapid fire banter of Caribbean Spanish filled the air. It was a lunchtime rush at the cafeteria of the Bravo supermarket here. But one loyal customer in particular, the Mets infielder Jose Reyes, caught the eye of the head chef who hugged him as he took his place in line yet again, like so many Mets from Latin America, hungry for home cooking. I love this story. I love everything about this story. I love the photos. I love the zestiness. I feel like I could taste the food. Why do you get teased about the story? Well, first of all, I love that. That lead photo is hilarious. He's wearing what, if I remember Versace or Gucci outfit, Gucci. his assistant is, his assistant is to his left. There's the guy in the cowboy hat. And then the little kid in the shopping cart and there's like the juice and the yogurt in the back. I'm doing this from memory. I think there's like Red Sox flag above the, the wow. stuff. It's just like, it's a fascinating, I didn't study photography, but you know, there's like the, you know, the back, the, the lower third, the back third, there's all these different layers and angles and color. And just to see this hundred million dollar major league player sitting in Versace outfit, sitting right there uh, in front of everyone, in the supermarket uh, eating his Dominican food was hilarious, but so you know, I get teased for this story because I do write about food a decent amount. There's a certain like I get teased for like having sub beats within my beat of covering baseball, and one of them is like food, and it's just like it's a it's a very you know timesy in story, as in like it you know cuts across culture, um, food, you know food. It, it draws in, and those stories I like the most though, the ones that draw people in that aren't necessarily about sports too, because. Maybe you're not a Mets fan, but, you know, everyone can relate to home cooking or, um, you know, going to the supermarket, I guess, uh, and home and like the, you know, the, the connection among Dominican players in that story, too, because the supermarket owner is Dominican himself um, and he would give jobs to Dominican players or give them a place to live. Uh, so all that stuff, I think that really draws me in, but I get teased about it because, you know, I'm writing about a supermarket cafeteria when I was covering the Mets, I remember like everyone's covering the spring training game and I dipped out to go meet Jose after he had come out of the spring training game, dipped out, met him outside the clubhouse. And we were like, he went in his car and I went with my car with the photographer. Um, and I'm like, everyone's covering the game and I'm at the supermarket cafeteria writing about food. So like, you know, that's kind of like, you know, my editors also tease me and this is in a nice way that every time I bring up story ideas, or every time I file a story, look for a music reference or a food reference. Most every story I file has some allusion to either of them. So in, in this case, like I follow my stomach, you know, I like to eat. I like to eat food from all over the world, different cultures. I like experiencing culture through food. And so I remember covering the Mets and there was, this was I was new to covering the Mets. And uh, I'd asked one of the guys who worked for the team in the minor leagues, where's a good place to eat? You know, I looking for Latin American food myself. I was new to Port St. Lucie covering spring training and they sent me to the supermarket. So I went there to eat myself, just chatting and eating. And I find out that all these minor leaguers went to go eat there. And then I find out that the major league players all went there and shooting the breeze with some of the guys on the team. And I was like, well, if this is the place and you know, Port St. Lucie, you got to understand is not, it's not the, it's like, how do I describe it? Uh, the, the eating options of Port St. Lucie are kind of terrible. There's a lot of chain joints, you know, like, uh, Chili's or, you know, Outback Steakhouse, no knock on them, but 
it's a kind of very suburban, a little kind of boring. There's not much to do over there. And so I thought like this kind of vibrant culture through this cafeteria where generations of Mets players had been coming to eat and even getting a place to live through the supermarket owner and even getting a job I thought was interesting. And that to me, I thought was more interesting than maybe covering a spring training game that day. Two things about Port St. Lucie. Number one, I did a story about Vanilla Ice, the former rapper many years ago. And Vanilla Ice invested tons of money in real estate in Port St. Lucie before Port St. Lucie blew up because of the Mets Hmm. and made millions and millions of dollars off of Port St. Lucie, which I always find very interesting. Um, (laughs) Number two, what if you went there and the food sucked? Like, what if you went there and the food was shit? You did not like the food, but all these players are going there. Does that change your story at all? No, I would still write about it because if this is something that they, there's like a kind of like a cultural clearinghouse, because this is where they all went uh, to eat. I think we'll still write the story, but I did go out and test it out myself. I went to go eat some food there one day for lunch and it was good. And I, you know, I got my Cuban coffee. Uh, I remember getting some thick annuals, which are Venezuelan, like fried cheese, it, you know, wrapped in dough. I was like, this is quality food. I could see why the players all come here. It's cheap. Uh, sometimes they eat for free if they don't have much money. It was worthwhile. Yeah, that's a good question, though. I probably would still write those stories, though, either way. So. Wait, I ask you a serious question. If the New York Times came to you tomorrow and said, we really like how you write about food, would you want to be our food critic <laughs> in sports? Would you do it? I would love to write about food one day. I mean, I hope I'm not surprising my boss is what I mean. Like, I, I do appreciate food, good food and like writing about food. I'm just not good enough to do it, I think. I, I, I read the food critics at our place. I cannot hold a candle to those guys, uh, those people. I mean, women and, and guys, sorry. They're really good. Um, I can't do it. Uh, I would probably just write, this food is really good. I liked this, ate this. It was really interesting where they, how they made this. And that would be the end of my story. I wouldn't really write about it with the same depth that they do. So I, I'm not equipped, but that would be fun. Especially living in New York. I love going to places and checking off like a country, like, you know, especially on the road. That's one of the advantages of covering baseball in normal times is you're in a different city all the time. And, you know, I try to find like, what's the most unique food I can get here that I cannot get back in New York. And so like I'm in San Francisco, I go to go get, I go get good Burmese food in San Francisco. There's incredible Burmese food in San Francisco. Or if I'm in LA, you know, go get great Thai food or great Armenian food. Uh, Or if I'm in Orange County, go get great Vietnamese snails. Like they have incredible snails down there in Orange County. So I try to do that. And so I try to experience culture through food. I just wish I knew how to write about it better and uh, one day. So. This is this is way off topic, but we, so I'm from New York, but we live in Orange County in California. Mm. And it's definitely a bubble here. And it's insane the number of people who have, ne- we're an hour away from LA who never take their kids to LA. And one of the things my wife and I, we make it our mission to take my, my kids' friends. We'd be like, we're going to LA, we're going to a taco truck. We're going to LA. We're going to this place. We're going to LA. We're going to that. I mean, what is, what is it? What is the joy of travel without freaking eating the local foods? It's insane to be like, I'm just going to stay in this place where Taco Bell and Chili's sees the day. It, ins- it drives me crazy. And I was just like you when I was covering baseball, everywhere I could eat, I would eat and it wouldn't be at the roadside McDonald's. So. And it's, I mean, like in my eye, I guess, my following my stomach led to that story and it's led to other stories. Uh, I, I wrote a story about um, this kind of informal food network that Dominican players had. Uh, they've been sharing food with each other for decades. Um, started, you know, I guess people credit Vladimir Guerrero senior to uh, and his, and his mother at the time making food and sharing it with your teammates and the visiting team. And so that was a matter of me being in a clubhouse and following my stomach and seeing players had the food at their locker, asking them where they eat, what they eat, just shooting the breeze, like, you know, you know, asking them what they do in their free time and stuff like that. And that led to writing that story just because I guess I follow my stomach. So, um, I mean, in terms of story ideas, like this is maybe off topic, but like I try to, you know, be a human being, you know, put themselves in their shoes. What do they do? What do they do in their free time? What do they eat? What do they, where do they go? What do they watch? What do they read? And sometimes, you know, most of the time that does not lead to an interesting story, but sometimes you strike gold when they have a really thoughtful, interesting explanation as to like what they do in their free time. That makes sense. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son, Emmett, who started working today as a CIT at a local summer camp. So Emmett, how's that going? It's okay. Why just okay? Well, it's a good amount of work, and I get paid nothing, and the bosses are sort of critical, and I'm not even sure what I get out of it. Emmett, seriously, this is the point in the ad where you're supposed to say this podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You've done this a million times. What the hell is wrong with you? 
Wait, wait, what were you talking about? My unpaid, unsatisfying job. Oh, right. You've covered, you covered the Washington Nationals for the Washington Post. You've covered the Mets at the Times. You've covered the Yankees at the Times. Do you like covering baseball games? So I cannot, <laughs> I'm going to give you a, uh, I'm going to straddle the fence here uh, okay. because, you know, one of my colleagues, Adam Kilgore at the Washington Post always told me this when I first started covering baseball. I learned a lot from him when I first started in you know, 2011, 2012. And it was, uh, you know, 162 game season. You think of every game as a chapter in a book and every chapter is connected to a larger theme of the season. So, but and it's your job to try and connect it to those larger themes, whether the you know, team is supposed to be competitive and make the playoffs, whether their offense is the, you know, they're driven by offense or whether they're driven by great starting pitchers or, or it's a star driven team, like a Bryce Harper team back in the day, um, you know, a franchise that's rising, whatever that case, it's your, it's your job to, to tie that chapter to the larger theme of the book. But frankly, some chapters, you know, a, a five to two win over the, the Padres back in the day, you know, in the middle of August is kind of boring. And you try hard to make it interesting and connect it to those larger themes. But over 162, some chapters invariably will be better than others. So it's my long winded way of saying that some games are more interesting than others. It's your job to try and tell people and explain to them why this is important, how it relates and how it connects to everything else. But, you know, I think personally to each their own. I enjoyed that time of covering games, but I guess for me, what I appreciated was doing the other, the other stories I thought that I was better at and the things I liked doing is drawing the humanity out of people, you know, drawing, you know, know, writing about trends or interesting things that I think were not being observed given my background, given my language skills that I thought was missing in the coverage. And like, I, I took that upon myself and as a mission to really draw that stuff out and do those stories because I thought that was lacking. And I think that's something personally that I want to do more of and like doing. Uh, so that's my wishy-washy way of coming back to saying, you know, I like covering good games. The playoffs are awesome, uh, big series, but sometimes those like when the Yankees are playing the Orioles, it's just, they're just crushing them and beating up on them. Those kind of make for interesting games, but sometimes they're just not that interesting. They're kind of boring. It's interesting because I feel like you've covered three major teams in the baseball era after I was in. And, and the, I feel like I was still in an era where beat writers weren't particularly friendly with each other. And there were, there was a lot of elbow throwing, especially in New York, there was a lot of elbow throwing and there was a lot of, can you get the fuck away from me? I'm interviewing him. You know, it was not like, Oh yeah. But did you feel a competitiveness with other writers? Was there a, did you have to keep a distance between yourself and other writers? Or is that just a bygone way of covering baseball? No, I think it still exists in some areas. I think some people, there's a little more animosity among some people on certain different beats. And I, and I guess, but I will say the one caveat is, you know, beats have probably gotten smaller from when I think you were covering baseball day to day or around it more. There's fewer traveling reporters. Uh, You know, when I was covering the nationals, you know, despite DC being, you know, a major market in the country, there might've been, I think off the top of my head, maybe only four independent or four outlets, sorry, traveling, covering the nationals, even when they were good. And so sometimes even three on a long road trip. Um, and some of the other ones maybe worked for like the RSN or, you know, they worked for a rights holder. So sometimes, you know, it came to asking tough questions. You might be the only one, uh, or one of only two people asking those tougher questions. Um, so ultimately I guess, you know, if there's only four of you guys or four, four people covering a beat, like you're around these people more than your own families. And so I don't necessarily have to be friends with them. They don't, I don't have to be my best friend, but you do have, I I do think you should be cordial with them. You do see them every day, uh, almost every day. You spend so much time with them saying hello and hi, whatever. Um, How's the family? That stuff kind of like a level of uh, respect, I guess is okay. And I think I feel that happens mostly. Um, And sometimes, you know, I've had friends, great friends on beats, especially like when I was covering the Mets, great friends that covered the team with me. Uh, for other outlets and you would get, you know, pissed that they beat you on a story um, and you would tease them, but then it just, it was fuel to get back, get back at them, you know, some of the next one. And also like at the Washington post, you know, I was like, you know, I, we did more of the day to day nitty gritty at the New York times. I didn't miss the bar was higher, different in a way we cover the world of sports. So every little thing that was happening with the Mets at the time was not necessarily a story for us. We were interested in bigger stories, interesting things, revelatory stories, trends, um, things that maybe weren't being covered. So, you know, I maybe necessarily wasn't competing with those Mets reporters for, you know, the backup third baseman 
make something up here, pulled his hamstring and is out for, for a month. That's not something that I would necessarily be competing with them on. I obviously wanted to know the little things that were going on, the small things, the small stories beget the big stories, but you know, there is competitiveness, uh, some places better than others. Um, but you know, I think nowadays, I think it's such a grind. It's, it's a shared experience that, you know, I'd rather just be cordial with everyone, even though I do want to kick their butt with an interesting feature like in the, in the paper the next day. Have you ever in your career, have you ever felt you had a player who just didn't want to deal with you? Did you ever have that? Players? Hmm. There. Yeah. There's a couple players that maybe for some reason, uh, I, I don't, I don't really, one, I didn't know. I don't know why he stopped really talking to me, but he did. Uh, like how does that manifest just, itself? Like, do you go up to him and he's like, yeah, I'm not talking to you. Yeah. Like, like almost literally the cold shoulder where he would just say hi and just like walk away afterwards. Uh, despite like earlier that season, he would like say hello to me every day, like want to chat with me every day and told me a really, really gripping personal story about himself. I guess he had not really told before. And then months later, my guess is that I asked him uh, a question about why he grounded out, why he grounded into an ending ending double play and they lost by a run. And I'd asked him, you know, what had happened, why he was swinging at a 3-0 pitch in that situation. And I guess he didn't appreciate that question. I guess he stopped talking to me really afterwards because he, he would even like walk away after I said hello to him sometimes afterwards. But it was almost near the end of that season and he wasn't on that team after that. So I didn't really have to deal with him anymore. But like I didn't I still didn't really understand how it went from wanting to talk to me every day, basically say hello to me every day, chat, chat with me to, to walking away when I said hello. Weird. It's happened. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, I feel like you did cover baseball on a much friendlier day than I did. I'm just saying as far as like. Oh, I didn't get, I didn't come to push, push comes to shove or, or like almost getting a fight with, with people. I think you almost did. Uh, that has never happened. I mean, I've had that maybe more with, with executives than players. Right. Uh, I think with players, um, I think there's, it's kind of different. I don't know why. Maybe I haven't had that experience with them in that way. I've had players, you know, get mad at me, frustrated, tell me not to write something, get mad at me why I wrote something. But I think you explain your point of view and they know who you are. They respect you as a person that, 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 you know, by the next day, you know, I think they get it. At least the players I've dealt with have get, they've gotten it, explained my point of view, heard them out, told them why I did something. And I think things were okay afterwards. And also ultimately if they respect you, they might be mad, but they understand why you did it um, and understand that you are a respectable journalist and you're there the next day to stand by your story in case they had any problems with it and come to you directly. I think they appreciate that too. When's the last time you actually saw a ball player reading a physical newspaper? Man, that's a good question. <laughs> it's, well, one, it's been a while since I've been a clubhouse, so I haven't seen yeah. that. And so um, then I'm trying to remember last time I, I've seen players read books. And so the players have, that have read books, I always go up to them, man, what are you reading? Like, I don't see players read books in the clubhouse very often. And if I see them with the newspaper, it's maybe to get the crossword puzzle. But some clubhouse assistants already just like print out or photocopy the, the, just cut out just the, the crossword puzzle printed off. And so they have that sitting on the, you know, uh, on the table. So they don't have to be fishing through the newspaper. I've seen them in Philadelphia in the visiting clubhouse in Philadelphia at citizens bank park. There's that circular table right when you walk in, there's a bunch of like local newspapers right there. I do see players like, you know, flipping through that, thumbing through that, looking at the kind of funny headlines that the New York post or the, the daily news, Philadelphia daily news might have, but sitting there and literally like going page by page, turning it. I, I can't remember the last time. I have always found the, I've talked about this on this podcast before, but it's one of my favorite topics because it's so ridiculous. Like I find the major league clubhouse to be the worst place in the world. Um, I hate standing in a major league clubhouse. I hate everything about it. I feel like the class nerd with a kick me sign on the back of my, I, I, I hate the fake. I need to look like I'm busy while I stand here just waiting for someone, but I'm not really bu- like, I hate everything about it. I consider it a yeah. intimidating and awful place to be. Am I overstating that in your personal career? It can absolutely be very awkward, but I also think it's a matter of how you, what you make of that time. So it's collectively bargained. It's 50 minutes, 50 minutes, five, zero minutes. The clubhouse has to be open before a game. That's 50 minutes. I get to talk to the people that I cover day to day. I am not going to waste that time. Sorry, frankly, you know, chatting long conversations with other reporters. I see them in the press box. I'll see them during batting practice. I'll see them after the game, whatever. That's five, zero minutes I get to spend with these guys. So even if it's me shooting the breeze with a player, I'd rather go do that, check in with a guy I have not talked to in a while. Maybe it's been a few days or weeks where I haven't, with my notebook aside, 
how are you? What's going on? How are you playing? Like, how's the family? What have you been up to? Watch anything good recently? Whatever it is, whatever connection we have, whatever things related. I'd rather go do that than stand around and talk to the other reporters. Because I think ultimately when reporters stand in mass talking to each other, the players are like, what the heck are these guys doing in here? Get out of here. If you're not doing your job, you're just standing here doing nothing. Why are you here? And so ultimately, I want to make sure I get the most out of that time. And I also think it sends like the, diff- the bad image if we are just doing that too much. And so it can be awkward uh, where you're just literally just, they say you're waiting for one guy and you like have to be like, you don't want to miss it. So you don't want to go get locked up in another conversation at the other end of the clubhouse and you're waiting near his locker room to show up. Yes, it's very awkward. You have to get out of everyone's way. You're, you, maybe you're in someone else's locker. You got to get out of the way. Uh, yeah, that's kind of awkward. It is their place of work. Um, but it's also my place of work for 50 minutes. Um, and I try to get the most out of it. If that makes sense. So, you know, I've heard players complain, like, what are you doing in here? Like you guys are just standing around talking to each other. What's going on? I was like, well, if your teammate would show up, I would be out of your way. Like, yeah, yeah. So if you want to go find them or like, uh, especially post game, this happens post game a lot where they like go lift. You got to do stretch. You got to do ice, you know, ice You do post treatment. Like if a player that factored into a game that like needs to talk to us reporters, just like talk to us. And like the sooner we talk to who we need to talk to, we'll be out of there. I don't want to be in there. Like, just milling about. I have something to do. I'm on deadline too. So the sooner you knock it out, the sooner we'll be out of your hair. So, you know, I sometimes I tell them like, you know, if they complain that we're in there too much, if you want to go get your team out of the back, feel free. So. Exactly. Wait. So if you're in a, you're in a, whatever the Mets clubhouse um, and you got your 50 minutes and Pete Alonso isn't there and DeGrom isn't there and Syndergaard isn't there. And you know, anyone you need to talk to is not there, but the backup shortstop who's hitting 193 and barely plays is there, you will go talk to sure. him as opposed to standing around. Yes. yes. Even if you have nothing yes. because in your head to say to him. Yeah. Just shoot the breeze, catch up with them. Um, I do cover the whole team. So I, I would like to know as much as I can about everyone on the team. Right. And also like sometimes the people that factor in, you know, like factor in less, I guess, sorry to say it that way, but like sometimes I've found the backup catcher, the, the bullpen, especially the relievers, have so much time on their hands. You know, they don't pitch every day. They're sitting in the and just chatting with each other. Like, very quirky. Sometimes they have sometimes have the most interesting stories to tell or the most interesting perspective or vantage point uh, because they're sitting in the dugout or the, or the bullpen watching and they see things or notice things or are very observant. So sometimes those guys can be very useful in terms of their perspective or like running an idea by them. Like, Hey, I've been thinking about this. Like, am I off base with like, this is how you guys are operating or I've noticed this in baseball. Like even just to run that by them and to hear them say like, Oh, that you know, that's not true. Or I have noticed that too, or that is a problem. Like, that can be useful time where I can run ideas by them. And, you know, I, I take pride in like my story ideas. So I have a bazillion of them. I have like a story idea list of 10 years running where I write down all my thoughts that I want to go back. Sometimes like I'll, that'd be time for me to bounce some of them off of them. Like, Hey, is this real? Is this legit? Is this wrong? Why do you do this? Like, why do you do that? And sometimes I can, you know, figure out what's true or what's not. So Wait, I just want to say, so I'm, I'm the exact same way with that. I am. Um, I have lists hanging all over my office here. Um, <laughs> I hate when people are like, actually, I remember when I was in college and I was editor of my student newspaper and I, I went to speak to a class and I said, if you come to the office, I guarantee you, I will come up with a story idea for you to do. I was trying to get right. I guarantee you, I will come. And the teacher at the end came up to me and said, you can't, you can't promise you have a story idea. And I was like, there's always a story idea. There's always yeah. a story idea. There's, there's an infinite Agreed. number of story ideas. I hate when people can't come up with story ideas. There's always a story idea. I mean, to me, I find writing really hard. I find story idea generation a lot easier i think my favorite question is to ask why and this is like even when i was a college you know like doing internships when i was in college i would literally like i was covering like a college wooden bat league uh in north carolina and i would literally go up to guys like why do you sign why do you sign that way why does your autograph look like that and like sometime it led to interesting story it led to interesting stories anecdotes which led to an interesting story that i wrote during the internship so like i mean i even asked like why do you wear your socks up? Why do you wear your socks down? Like, you never know. Like, maybe there is a really thoughtful explanation to why they do this. That is something that really reveals something unique about them. So I like asking why. I try to be very observant and I write down what I see. I don't let any idea go to waste. I write it down because a strand of a thought or a strand of an observation, no matter where you are, riding the train, reading a story, on a plane, you notice something, watching a, TV, watching, watching a game on TV or a movie, anything, reading the news and you see one line in a story, about something, some other topic that sparks your memory or like sparks something, turns the light bulb off. 
write that down. And then maybe down the road, you see that thing happening elsewhere and you have a trend story already. Like, so I don't let that stuff go to waste. I write it down. I just came back from Florida. I was there for some Olympic qualifiers and I came back with like six, seven other new ideas. Can't do them all, but like I write, I make sure that after I have a conversation with someone, go write, jot that stuff down so I cannot forget about it. I have this one, I have like multiple notes files that I can access on my laptop and my phone where I'm constantly updating. Thank God for that app. Because if not, I used to be texting or emailing myself to stuff, or I would write it on my arm sometimes. And I would have this story idea written on my arm and I would like get back to my computer and like quickly jot them down. <laughs> so, yeah. Give me an origin story. Give me a story idea that you had. That's kind of like where you got it from and then that it actually came to, came to be, or maybe it didn't come to me. I was covering high school sports at the Washington post. And uh, I, I think I have an, I think I have a maybe more visual memory, I guess. And I would see stuff and remember it. And so I used to go to practice during the week, football practice, just to shoot the breeze with some of the coaches, you know, it's the, the DC area is huge. I think it was like 200 some schools that we had to cover. And so I was, you know, sh- shooting the breeze with a high school coach while his team was practicing. I think this was, they were the Raiders at the time. This was in Falls Church, Virginia. That was their logo, but it was red and black. And it was the exact same logo as, um, exact same logo, I think this is as the Oakland Raiders. And I made a comment to him. I was like, how, how do you guys have the exact same logo, just different colors? And he was like, oh, funny you mentioned that. I was an assistant coach at a little school. Um, and we got a cease and desist letter from a university saying that we had copied their logo. And I was like, what? So I write it down. I follow up on it. I start asking other coaches. I start noticing that, start putting together a list of all these high schools in the area that had straight copies of college and, and NFL teams too. Turns out multiple, multiple high schools in the area had been sued or had been sent cease and desist letters from universities. Universities were, were tougher about this than the pro teams. So there was Westfield High School, I remember, in uh, Northern Virginia that had the same W as Wisconsin, but it was gold and black. The same kind of leaning cursive W had been sued by Wisconsin and told like they can't do that. So they literally had to go change all their logos just because they had the same W in a different color. So they, they straightened out their W, but I remember at the time, the only place that they couldn't change the W was the turf, artificial turf field. They had that kind of leaning cursive W on the field. So they weren't going to pay X amount of money to change that. So I wrote a story about that. And we like, that was just because, you know, just shooting the breeze with someone trying to be observant, making sure I wrote down that and those, those observations and following up on it. And the same with like the Dominican players sharing food. That was me like noticing that they... Dominican players, Latin American players would get to the clubhouse and they would have Tupperwares of food already waiting for them at their locker. I'm like, where is this food coming from? It's because Vladimir Guerrero Sr. and his grandmother, his mother, sorry, had been sending food from the other side or the visiting Dominican player had learned that tradition from them and was sending food from the other side uh, or vice versa. Like that's just observing, noticing, asking, and, and uh, sometimes it doesn't lead to anything, but sometimes you strike gold. I just want to say uh, October 21st, 2010, copycat logos are pitting high schools and colleges in a trademark turf war. And then the lead is during the 2008 presidential campaign. That seems like a long time ago. CNN anchorman Lou Dobbs also seems like a long time ago. Hosted his evening broadcast from the gymnasium of Freedom South Riding High in Loudoun County. Painted on the wall was one of the, was the school's official logo, a black and gold ego with wings spread open and flashing its talons. One of those watching on TV was a graduate of Georgia Southern University who recognized that the Eagle was the same one used by the university's athletic department and called the school to alert it. When word reached Lee Davis, Georgia Southern's associate vice president for legal affairs, he printed a copy of Freedom South Riding's logo from its website and compared it to the university's design. I blew them up and put them on top of each of each other, Davis recalled, and no question, it was tracing. It was a tracing. Davis contacted the three-year-old high school and demanded it stop using the Eagle. That's awesome. That's hey. like a story where like maybe like, you know, you're covering high school sports, the DC area. You're like, how can I write? You know, you're not looking to write a story specifically, you know, to get attention, but you're writing it because you want to draw in a larger audience. And that was like, wow, this checks a lot of boxes. It, it involves a law. Everyone's got an alma mater, you know, like, you know, it involves your local high school, some, you know, the legal aspects, like, you know, the tradition. And that would draw people in that necessarily wouldn't care about Freedom South Riding High School. Uh, so I always try to look for those bigger themes um, and stories. And that one, you know, thankfully did. And that was just because I was shooting the breeze with a coach after telling him like, Hey, your logo looks the same as another, as the, the Oakland Raiders and him telling me that story and following up on it. But I also think what you do really well is 
one of my favorite things, and it's something I tell students all the time, which is I feel like too often people look for story ideas and they look for the big, like they look for the big. I want to do a profile of David Wright. I want to do a story about the Redskins, the big. And what really works is when you find the tiny, uh, mm-hmm. here's a school ripping off another school's logo. Here's a bunch of ball players eating at the supermarket down the street. And you take that little sliver of a, of a thing and you expand it. I feel like that's where great stories come from. I'm not, I'm not going to do doing a profile of Mike Trout. That's a big idea. Doing a profile of Mike Trout's ankle tattoo is a little idea. That's a much more interesting idea. It seems like that more, kind of guide you. It's the uniquer way to tackle a larger theme. And I think, uh, you know, Mike Trout's been written about extensively over the years. Maybe he's not revealing so much about himself personally, but he's been written about a ton. People sort of know who he is. And if you want to find a new way, uh, push yourself to find a new way to write about it, maybe that small little thing can really help draw people in and uh, reveal something new about him that people don't know. So I think, yes, starting with a small that could be potentially emblematic of something larger. Uh, that's, that's a great move. I would say in terms of tackling bigger themes. Um, you wrote a piece I really loved. Uh, it was the headline was, uh, when you hear the heart, you know, it's your motor. Eduardo Rodriguez is the only major leaguer known to have developed myocarditis from COVID-19. The Boston Red Sox starter wants to keep it that way. And this ran in May uh, 19th. So not that long ago, your lead was the bullpen session was supposed to last 30 pitches. Even after a nasty two-week bout of COVID-19, Eduardo Rodriguez thought he could make it through this ordinary baseball task last July. But by the fifth pitch, the top starting pitcher for the Boston Red Sox was so drained, he said he was seeing stars. It felt like I was going to faint, he said recently in Spanish during a video call. By the 10th pitch, I said, that's it. Uh, Rodriguez, an athletic trainer, assumed that his body was still shaking off the rust from the illness. So three days after the failed attempt, having squeezed in some cardiovascular exercises despite lingering lethargy, uh, Rodriguez again climbed in a mound, uh, climbed a mound at Fenway Park for bullpen session. Exhaustion again took over by his tenth pitch. I just couldn't anymore. He said, "I felt bad." I find the writing part pretty hard. I don't know if other people feel the same way. The writing is so hard. I think I don't want to sound like a complaining artist, but like I just, you know, I just that's the part I struggle with. Uh, finding the information, finding the stories, reporting it can be more fun. Just distilling it down to like a really manageable 1500 words can be so challenging sometimes writing a good, like 1200 word story is really hard. I find rather than like writing a 3000 word story where you can just throw everything in there and you know, like, here you go. Wait, I'm taking, I'm going to throw a curveball here. I'm going to forget asking you about the story specifically. Why do you find writing a 1200 word esque story hard? What is hard about it for you? Because you have to distill it down more like every, at that point, every sentence it means it's, an, it's a really, you have to be really economic. Like you really have to like, this is, I only have 1200 words. I have to get this idea across and you need to convey hopefully thoughtfully with nuance, whatever it is, 1200 words. Whereas if something is longer, you, you don't, you can kind of, I mean, so I'm, not, I'm not saying people writing longer stories are not thinking, but you have a little, maybe a little more leeway. And so I think maybe in some cases, you know, some people would argue that some stories are too long. Uh, maybe in a daily newspaper. And so we need to like be more economic. And so in this case, I think writing a 12, a good hundred, 1200 word story where you have to really think about who you're quoting, how much you're quoting them, what information you're getting across. You just, I spend way more time trimming and trimming and trimming and trimming, rewriting, trying to condense rather than just here's the whole quote. And then maybe not thinking about the way it transitions or reads as much if that makes sense. Cause I have more leeway. So that, yeah. You do this story, you interview Eduardo Rodriguez, you do your research, whatever that entails. You at some point sit down to write this thing. Did you transcribe the interview with you? Do you like, how do you, do you have it sitting next to you? Like how I have you, a terrible you, process? I have a terrible process? process. What is your, I hate, <laughs> so bad. I even hate the so word bad. process. I feel like when we say process, we found like a bunch of douchebags. I'm always like the process. And they're like, yeah, okay, buddy. Well, you're not digging ditches. You know, unless I'm on like crazy deadline, I with something like this, like a feature story, I, I put everything in front of me and I, I want everything in front of me. And it's probably the, a really inefficient way to do this, but I put out, I, I transcribe everything. I put all the notes in front of me and I just like painstakingly go through it and write the story. So I just, it's a really, sometimes I end up staying up super late, waking up super early. I find that like five in the morning, four thirty-five in the morning where I'm not getting phone calls, texts, emails, work related reporting wise, uh, that I can just sit down and really, really focus. I, it, you know, I put my body through some, a lot of caffeine and stay up and just hammer it out. And so I really like, literally I'm distilling 
all these interviews down to one story, little by little, it just takes a while. There's got to be a better, there's better ways to do this. Sometimes I, I can do that a lot faster than others. But if I'm on deadline, like I don't do it that way. I just, I just start writing and just like hammer it out. Um, so it's like the distilling it down. Like maybe they told a great anecdote that may be too much of a tangent. Can't really squeeze that in there. Maybe it's kind of funny and interesting, but you know, it just, it's not going to work for this story. And I want it to read quickly and have good pace. And I really want to make sure it sticks to this theme. Then I can't use it, but I will put myself through going through all those anecdotes to make sure Xing those out, taking the best ones, then distilling, 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 if that makes sense. So it, t- it takes a while sometimes. When it's like three in the morning, <laughs> you have a story due the next day and you've had your fifth cup of whatever. Are you, are you more happy or miserable or are you pure miserable? So <laughs> it's, it's like not fun, but you know, the thing is that somehow I've, it, it works, I guess, because I've managed to produce stories that I guess I'm proud of like through that process. So I know in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, this does not feel good. I can't wait to get to sleep tonight. I guess I'm catch up on sleep. But in the end, uh, somehow I am able to produce like that. So like there's a light at the end of the tell you, you know, I know I'm going to pull through this, even though it stinks at three in the morning, you're still chugging coffee, feeling sleepy. So that's why I say the writing process can be terrible, but sometimes I go through weeks. Like there are times, I mean, this is probably like, you know, like for you too. I mean, maybe everyone's different, but uh, you know, when you hit a, hit a home run and they say you hit the sweet spot, if you're played, you know, baseball or softball, mm-hmm. you don't really feel it. You just, you just hit the sweet spot of the bat and it just flies off the bat and you didn't even know it was going to go out. There are times where like, you just sit down to write and I don't know. It just like just comes all it just flows right out of you and you read it and you're like, wow, I'm, I just did that all very quickly. I distilled all the information down. Uh, so sometimes I need to force myself to be like the story is due tomorrow morning, no matter what, even though there's no deadline to it. It's self-imposed and like get it done. And that somehow gets it out of me. So, Do you feel like so you're you're uh, what are you? 34, 35, 35. So you I'm, I got 14 years on you like. um you have been raised with the internet. Like when you were in college, 2008, you know, all these things are already sort of in place, not all the mechanisms, but everything was in place. Um, Are you able to write and not be like, I'm going to check Twitter. I'm going to go on Google. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. Can you literally say, all right, two hours, no internet. Depends. Like, you know, I have a beat, you know, I cover major league baseball now before I was covering the Yankees and Mets and national. So like, you have a beat. If you do step away, given the internet, like stories can happen and change and break and, you know, evolve in two hours. Like that's a long time nowadays. And so if you have a beat, like sometimes you're like the back of your mind is like, Oh, you know, Oh, you know, like shoot, like, you know, what's, ha- what's happening that I'm missing. And you're like nervous. Look, let me check. But I sometimes just, you just got to buckle down sometimes and like step away. And if you really are worried, something's going to happen. Maybe I can give my editor a heads up or one of my colleagues like, Hey, you know, I really need to step away for a few hours here. I'm going to knock this out. But yeah, there is always that back of your mind. Like you got to check Twitter and you end up doing that. And I end up doing that. That's why maybe sometimes really early in the morning where very for a lot fewer things are happening, a lot fewer text messages, phone calls, you can really actually buckle down. That's why sometimes maybe I get the best out of me. Uh, Super late night writing. It's really, I find that really hard. I find like super early in the morning to be the best time. I don't know. Maybe sometimes you just wake when you're staring down the deadline and you're like, your mind just cuts out all the garbage and distills it down automatically better than, Oh, I got a few more hours. Oh, I got a half a day to finish this. You know, I don't know if the same for you writing the books. Oh, I'm going to take my time doing this. But when you're staring down that, uh, staring down that deadline, it just comes out of you. Yeah. People always, I get asked a lot, like, how do you, uh, how do you have the discipline to write books? which is applies to anything. And the no, answer is always, I don't know how yeah, but the answer is like you have a deadline and you need to eat. So what are you supposed to do? Like, what is the alternative Eating is important? I don't really have an alternative. So that's how I have the discipline. Like, I don't, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. It's sometimes like my fuel sometimes is like, this is a great story. I want to get out there as soon as possible. And selfishly, I'm very competitive. And so I want to beat other people to the story. And I also want a great story out there because to represent myself in the newspaper and, and that, you know, so yeah, a part of me is like fueled and driven to like, I need to get this out. I need to beat people. I want this great story out there. So yeah, I'm going to get this done as soon as possible. I want it out there. So that drives me too. And the, you know, the need to pay the bills too. Uh, Let me ask you a final question. Um, I ask everyone, almost everyone this in this podcast. What is the, uh, what's the confrontation? 
What's he angriest at you? Oh, you've given this some thought, maybe. What is the angriest someone has been at you in your job? I can. I don't know if I want to say who, who it is, but there's a general manager of a team I covered uh, who got he used to get pretty mad at me one time, and um, I was covering the team, and he, up until basically first pitch, was chewing me out outside the visitors clubhouse. So we're standing outside the visitors clubhouse on the road. He's chewing me out and the, the head PR person was standing there and basically had to tell him, Hey, the game's about to start. We should probably get back up to our suite, get up to our suite. I was like, yeah, I, I probably need to get to the press box to go watch this game. But I mean, he was giving it to me and, you know, I was pushing back. He was giving it to me. And uh, yeah, that was an interesting experience, but you know, uh, wait, what was he mad about? Yeah. Mad about something I had written, you know, they were uh, interested in, in trading for relievers at the time. The bullpen needed help. And that's what I had written. And uh, he said it was inaccurate. And I told him if it was inaccurate to tell me to correct it on the record, because, you know, that's the, the challenge him to say something that I did not think was inaccurate. I believe we believed it was inaccurate, reported it to be like something they were interested in. Um Lo and behold, technically a month later, they traded for a closer. So uh, they were. So I was challenging him to like say it on the record. If you, if you, if you, if it's not true, say it on the record, and I will print that. Did not want to say it on the record. Uh, so back and forth, back and forth over that. And yeah, it was up until first pitch. <laughs> you go back and sit upstairs, and you're like, oh my gosh, did I not? Should I have said this? Should I have gotten this point across? But you stand your ground, you're firm. And like, hey, if there's anything wrong with what I wrote, I'm here. You tell it to me and break it down. What is wrong with it? They get mad. They yell. They yell. So what is wrong with it? Nothing. So then you're like, well, they just want to yell for a little bit. Uh, and sometimes I found, you know, uh, that the relationships where maybe there is kind of that tension point, you know, you are better standing with that person. You see each other. You really have a heart to heart in those situ- situations. Uh, maybe come out better from it. Was, was it awkward afterwards? Like next time you had to deal with the guy or not a big deal? Uh, maybe a little bit, but it's fine. I mean, like uh, it's not the first time that person and I had like, butted heads. Uh, not the first executive I've butted heads with before. And I, I'm not like 60 minutes, like investigating like a daily basis. I'm not like, it's my job to be hold people accountable, obviously. And like the report was going on. Uh, but I consider myself a pretty approachable person. If they have any issues, I'm there every day. Um, I think that's one thing that, 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 uh, GM appreciated was that I was there to stand by it, uh, and talk to him about it. And, but we had other instances where he, this person got mad at me too, though. So, and for the same reason and challenged him to tell me what was wrong and nothing came of it. So, right. Well, you survived. I don't, I mean, you, but you've had, you've had, you've had tougher ones than, than I have. So, yeah, but I was covering baseball and all these guys, well, I don't know what they're doing now, but I mean, I'm just saying I was covering baseball and these guys were injecting with all sorts of crazy drugs that, uh, it was definitely an era. It was definitely an era of, and even I just think things have changed. Uh, Cause if you look back at the seventies, the eighties and nineties, there were a lot of hostilities between ball players and, and reporters. And I think it's definitely mm-hmm. mellowed maybe because the access is less. Maybe that's even, I, I have no idea, but well, you survived. Yeah. And I was thinking, I was, if I could say something, like I was thinking something to your very first question, I don't know what's still on my mind, but uh, about speaking Spanish in the clubhouse as a reporter. And I think, Something that has always stood out to me. I mean, there are team officials who have sometimes would make jokes about like, you know, no Spanish in the clubhouse to me. Uh, but I think after a while they got used to me kind of being a, I don't know, I don't say threat, but like, you know, maybe knowing stuff that they didn't want me to know. Ultimately, as I always tell people, like, if you don't want me to know about the bad stuff that's going on, then don't do bad stuff. It's like my job to figure out what's going on with this team. Like right. what's happening is happening. Like, you know, just got to, you just got to live with it. So, but I mean, in part of the larger theme of like covering Latinos more in baseball, and it's something that is a specific mission of mine being a Spanish speaker, I just, just challenge people to myself to, to think about, uh, you know, you know, minority groups or especially this case, like Latinos in baseball, but to write about them with the same nuance and depth as other groups, you know, like you brought up the example of Latino players, you know, how often are they recognized um, as being, you know, the, the great teammate, the team leader, really smart, good with numbers. How often, if you look at that, is that a Latino player versus a American white player? And I say the same thing with story ideas, you know, you know, for example, Dominican Republic obviously is a socioeconomic depressed, socioeconomically depressed country, a fair number of players that come from there are poor 
and, and signing that $20,000 bonus is life-changing money for that family. And so them coming to the United States, having their lives changed, learning English, those are all real experiences. Those are all real stories that need to be told. But I think only writing about, say, Dominican players in that case with that lens and that point of view, I think does them a disservice. And I think does Latinos, and you know, in this case, a disservice too, because there is more nuance and depth to their experiences in the United States and their experience playing baseball that I think is missing if, if those are the only stories that are told. So that's why, like, you know, I try to make the case, you know, writing about food, you know, <laughs> that's like something I think that drew out culture in them that showed, you know, I wrote a story about how baseball players, Latino players learned English through watching the TV show Friends. And I think that like showed culture and depth and, you know, assimilation maybe in a way and like um, the cultural experience that I think was missing if, if I didn't just write about that, you know, this is a poor player made it to the United States, life-changing money. There is more to their experiences and the same could happen with Japanese players, South Korean players, wherever it might be. But, and that's something, I guess I don't know why I wanted to say that, but it was on my mind. I'm like trying to tell their experiences with, because of my Spanish and, and language skills that I, make a personal point to like, that's something I want to do because I don't, I think those stories need to be told more. I mean, it's really interesting. Like I, um, I've been researching this book about Bo Jackson, former, former baseball football player. And he, uh, he went to college at Auburn and I read the old media guides, which I have them all Auburn media guides. And I would say 95% of the time, if you read the bios of the African-American players, they're gifted athlete fast runner, blah, blah, blah. And you read the bios of the white players. They're gritty. They're determined. They're hard nosed. They're work hard. And I just think, find me stories written by, and I'm not trying to be um, umbrella everyone, but written by white sports writers talking about the grittiness of a Dominican second baseman or the doggedness of a shortstop from Nicaragua. You know, like, I just think these guys oftentimes have gone through so much to get here. And then they come, at least when I was covering baseball, they really were, there were almost no stories ever about this guy's gritty, this guy's hard nose, this guy's edgy, this guy, blah, blah, blah. It was more like, he's lazy, he's indifferent, he's not a team leader, he's blah, blah, blah. And that's why I think having diverse voices covering teams is so yes. insanely important because you're writers were just going off of impressions that they had not off of the reality of the situation. And it used to really piss me off. So I don't but know. Like, you know, for example, like the, you know, the experience of black baseball players has been something that needs to be written about more. I've tried to write about it a lot the past year. It's come up a lot, obviously, since the, uh, the killing of George Floyd, um, you know, black, black baseball players organizing a nonprofit, for example, to, to really lend their voice together collectively about their experience. And so I'm not black. But you ask those people and those players what their experiences are. You want to learn from them. So I guess the larger point is we all have prejudice and biases, I guess. And we all have like, where, where does that gritty, like who gave that player that, um, who, who said that, that that player was gritty? Where, where did that reputation come from? Ask yourself who asked, like where that came from. And if a teammate is telling you that, where's that teammate's perspective? Like, do they understand where they're from? What is their bias? Like, so where do these things come from? I guess it's just asking ourselves, like, what is, try to ask myself this too, like, what's missing in my coverage? What voices are missing in my coverage? Am I writing enough about, you know, women in baseball? Am I only writing about guys in baseball? There are more women in baseball now than ever. And I try to stop myself and ask myself, whose voices am I missing in my coverage that are relevant and are part of this sport that I cover that are missing? I think that's something I guess all of us can ask and I try to ask myself that. And, you know, I wrote a story about women in baseball last year that was, that let, started from me asking you know, women that worked in front offices, like who are stories or people I should write about me trying to ask myself and stop myself and be like, I'm not writing about this enough. This is happening. Like rec trying to recognize my own bias uh, and saying, this is what I need to tackle. If that makes sense. And I, I'd say like the same thing with that reputation, someone being known, known as a smart player, a gritty player who came up with that, who said that, you know, was that coded language from scout? The majority of scouts are white. Americans like um, did that come from them? Like, who did it come from? Like break that down. Um, yes. And yeah, just challenging ourselves, I guess, as reporters to see like what's missing, whose voices are not represented enough in the paper. Well, listen, man, I'm a, uh, I'm a very big admirer of your work. I think your writing is great. I think what you do is awesome. And, uh, and you listen to this podcast. So that makes you all good with me. So I, uh, 
yeah. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I want to thank today's guest, James Wagner, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow James on Twitter at ByJamesWagner and read his work in the New York Times. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. <laughs>